So yeah, my name's Tim Utman. I'm working with an organization called the International Association for Refugees, based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Super excited to be here this morning. It was actually fun between services to be out in the lobby and realize how many faces flowing through this space uh, were familiar. And it just kind of feels like coming home in some ways, even though a lot of you probably don't know me. So this morning, I'd like to do two things with you. Okay, first of all, I'd like to spend a little bit of time in Scripture looking at kind of a new framework or a new lens where we can view this whole refugee people movement thing through and kind of highlight it in a little bit of a different way, perhaps. And the second thing is I just love telling stories. So if it's all right with you, I'd love to just tell a bunch of stories about how I see God moving in and with and through this refugee and and movement of people in forced displacement. We good with that? All right. All right. So if you could open your Bible or turn on your device, we're going to jump into Psalm 107. Psalm 107. While you're getting there, I'll share a little bit of how I got to be here this morning. So I have a nine-year-old daughter, Joy. So this is Joy over on this side. This is pretty much her natural state of being. She's upside down more than she's right side up. She loves gymnastics and tumbling and all those different things that nine-year-old girls love to do. And my wife, Rachel. Unfortunately, well, fortunately, I guess, Rachel and Joy are actually down in California, in Bakersfield, California, speaking at another church down there this morning. Um, In fact, right about now, they're probably standing in the courtyard of the church surrounded by a bunch of chickens for their big missions Uh, fall missions push. So sad that she can't be here with you, but super excited about how the Lord is is using her voice around the world for refugees these days. Steve said, I've known him since like 1979. Uh, We go back, and, and if you know Steve well, it's probably no surprise that he's been connected to my life at a whole bunch of kind of pivotal key moments. You know, stuff like towing our cars back when they'd break down all over Bothell and helping us get back home, putting a new roof on our house alongside of us, uh, navigating the loss of my father 20 years ago. In fact, I think it's 20 years ago today that my father passed away. And uh, Steve was there for that, helped navigate the, the funeral with us. And of course, you know, you can't forget the key moments in life like this one here, 15 years ago in August, had the honor of Steve performing our wedding down in Portland. So we go way back. But he's been a part of our ministry life as well. You know, serving on youth group together back at North Shore and inviting me to participate in my first missions uh, missions trip, really. Co-leading 300 high schoolers down to Tijuana, Mexico with Serve 95. Encouraging me to pursue my Bible and theology degree at Multnomah down in Portland, Oregon, where I met Rachel. And, and this whole journey that we're on in missions. He's been a part of all of these stages along the way. I don't have time for the whole story this morning, but just some highlights to backfill this a bit. Rachel really fell in love with refugees during a class on the history of modern warfare in university. And she started thinking about things like, What happens to a country when an entire generation of men go missing, when they are sent off to war and a bunch of them don't come home? What happens to the women and children and and the innocent collateral damage as people are forced to flee? What happens to the refugees? And that 
started her on this trajectory of thinking through lenses of forced displacement. After graduating college, 2001, Rachel went to Athens, Greece and served in a refugee ministry center there and continued to develop that love. 2001, if you think about it, was a long time before refugees really came center stage in the world media where they are today. Right? People back in 2001 weren't really talking about refugees a bunch, but it kind of makes sense. Right? Because refugees have been a part of the story forever. They've been a part of the story for as long as we've had scripture. They're a, a part of our story. Adam and Eve, Cain, Noah, Moses. The country of Israel who fled persecution and returned and fled again and, and were carried into exile and returned. All these forced displacement stories throughout Scripture. Hagar and Ishmael, Joseph, Moses, David, who fled Saul into the desert because Saul was out to get him for a long time. Nehemiah, Philip, Peter, Aquila and Priscilla in the New Testament. The entire early church, Northview, traces its heritage and its lineage. Our spiritual forefathers are so deeply tied into the refugee story. We read in Acts about how the persecution chased the early church out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, into the surrounding Mediterranean. We call it the Diaspora. The entire early church fled on a refugee journey. And what did God do through that time? It's incredible. They carried the love of Jesus with them wherever they went. They, they fled fear of persecution, but they boldly carried Jesus into new places that, that never experienced it in that way before. Churches were planted and grew up all over the Mediterranean, the known world of the time. And that's our heritage, right? That's, that's who we come from as Northview Church, is this story of how God moves people in pretty cool ways. Well, Rachel returned in 2002, so we could get married. She's uh, continued to have this seed grow up in her heart, as have I. And, and this is a really cliche saying, you've probably seen it crocheted onto throw pillows at your grandmother's house or on posters with cute kittens and puppies or something at the Christian bookstore. But I think it's really true. We pray, God, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Break, break my heart for the things that break your heart. And when we pray those prayers, He does. He does. It's an amazing thing. And our, our hearts start to change. The fear and the, the politics and the money and the oppression and the obstacles in our way and all those things start to, to melt away and they don't matter so much anymore. And what's left is the realization that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that, that he has come to herald the kingdom of heaven, man, it's bigger than any of us realize. And, and we realize that the love of God is so much deeper, so much more impactful than most of us will ever grasp. When God breaks our heart, we see the world and people in a whole new way. Our hearts break for things like the 65.6 million refugees and forcibly displaced people in the world today. That breaks my heart. It, it breaks my heart the fact that whatever we see in the news, the, the statistics are that more than half of those are women and children. 
who are fleeing violence that they have no say in and no control over. That breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that at a refugee camp in Kakuma with hundreds of thousands of refugees living in canvas tents, the average stay in this place designed for six months of emergency relief, the average stay is over 17 years that people live in a canvas tent. That breaks my heart. And that has propelled us into ministry. That has driven us to seek out God's passion for the lost. So in 2006, we sold our house, sold our car, got rid of a bunch of the stuff we owned. We sent our dog to live with another family. It's starting to sound like a bad country song. But we left, packed our stuff in a few suitcases and went to Rome, Italy to serve amongst refugees and asylum seekers there. The culmination of that after several years of ministry there was to start a small ministry center called Il Soggiorno, a safe space where guys could come in off the street out of the heat of the Italian sun or out of the rain of the cold Roman winters. Just have a safe space to sit and be and do life together. 2012, shortly after we started the refugee center, we moved to South Hall, which is a small suburb uh, in the outskirts of London, England. And there we had the opportunity to minister and work with stateless people, people whose countries no longer claimed them, who had no passport that would open any doors to home in the world. We worked with trafficked and prostituted women on the streets of London. We worked with kids' programs and supporting the local church and just had some amazing moments in Southall. All that kind of kind of crashed in 2015 when we got a letter from Her Majesty saying, thank you for your service, but you're gone. You see, and we got swept up in this tide of kind of nationalism and and. Uh, immigration and stronger borders and all this stuff. And the, the British started saying, wait a minute, we've got to get rid of people. And the first place they started looking were nonprofit organizations, schools and students, and uh, small businesses. And they would go through and they'd find anywhere that you hadn't crossed the T or dotted the I, and they would say, hey, you're out. Your visa's canceled, go home. And whole organizations were losing people to this. And our organization forgot to uh, cross a T, I'll tell you the story later if you want to meet me out back because it's, um, it's really crazy what happened. But we left this ministry that we had poured ourselves into. And we spent the next nine months, we moved back and couch surfed with family and friends all up and down the west coast of the United States trying to discern God's will, figure out what's next for us, for our family, for our daughter. Spent time praying and hanging out with people like Steve and Pam and just asking for insight and wisdom and saying, where do we go with this? And at the end of that time, we, we felt the Lord saying, I still want you to be a conduit of love for refugees. So we moved to Minneapolis. We joined our current organization, International Association for Refugees, and, and we're involved in global support roles now. We're based in Minneapolis, but you know, so this weekend, Rachel's in California. Uh, in a couple of weeks, she'll be flying to Italy. She'll be in the Middle East uh, doing some training and teaching there for a while. Next spring, she'll be in Germany and back in Italy for a while. So God's got us in a really interesting strategic place right now that we never could have predicted not so long ago. So that's kind of how we got here. That's kind of how we ended up in this space. And I want to jump into a little bit of Scripture on this. So we're going to open up to Psalm 107. There's a, 
a diagram here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. I co-opted this. That's another word for I ripped it off from a good friend of mine. You may have seen it used around here a time or two as well. But the idea is that crisis hits our life and life's going along and all of a sudden the valve shuts and, and the pressure starts to build up upstream of us. And kind of our relationship with the world around us, how we engage life around us, is changed. And all these cracks that have either been there or developed slowly over a bunch of years, and you don't know because life is just flowing and the crisis hits, and all of a sudden the pressure builds, and, and these things start to seep out of the cracks, and you see things you never saw. So a refugee crisis with five million Syrians pouring into a new world economy, and the cracks start to show, and they show in the church, and it's things like, questions about our safety and our security and divisions and how we see things and, and the, the widening of political gaps and, and our comfort and convenience and how that impacts the world that we live in and even the theology that we ascribe to around people. But I want to look at Psalm 107 and think through a lens that might help us reshape that, help release a little of that pressure and help us navigate some of those cracks. First verse of Psalm 107 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. It's this word, hesed. It's a Hebrew word. It doesn't have an immediate English uh, replacement. So it's often translated as steadfast love or faithful love. I couldn't decide, so I just used to call it faithful and steadfast love because that works for me. It's the idea that God's love is way bigger and longer than we think, and it just keeps hitting us where we need it. The book goes on, the the song goes on then to paint four pictures that help us understand this hesed love a a little bit more deeply. The first picture is refugees, so kind of verses like four through nine there. It says, some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty and their lives ebbed away and they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. And that sounds a lot to me like the refugee story, like people who are forced out of their place and they spend their lives seeking a safe spot. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And then in verse 8 he says, Let them... Give thanks to the Lord for his chesed love, his unfailing and steadfast love, and his wonderful deeds for men. He satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. And we see that. We see people turning and crying out to God and saying, I'm on this journey, I don't know where to go. And God's chesed love reaches down and radically impacts their lives. The second story is one of prisoners, people who've rebelled against the hand of God. Kind of verses 10 through about uh, 14, 15. So they're sitting in darkness and deepest gloom, prisoners suffering in iron chains for their own actions, for rebelling against the word of God. And they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them for their dis- from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and deepest gloom and broke away their chains. We're singing about that earlier today. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing chesed love and his wonderful deeds for men. He breaks down gates of bronze and cuts through bars of iron. 
In the next little vignette we read about verses 17 through like 22 are people who are suffering physically the consequences of their choices, the consequences of their sin. Right? They've made the choices and now they're, they're living in it. They loathed all the food and drew near the gates of death. And then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. Verse 19, and he saved them from their distress. He sent forth his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Sounds a lot like Jesus to me. His word going forth and healing and rescuing from the grave. His wonderful, now let them give thanks to the Lord for what? For his said love. His unfailing, steadfast love and his wonderful deeds for men. Let them sacrifice, thank offerings, and tell of his works and songs of joy. And then the final picture is kind of a strange one. It's, it's sea merchants. It's merchants at sea facing a deadly storm, fearing for their lives, riding the waves. And we know how it's going to end. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble. Verse 28, he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. Again, sounds like a story that Jesus told. They were glad when it grew calm and he guided them to their desired haven. 31, let them give thanks to the Lord for what? For his hesed, steadfast, unfailing love. His wonderful deeds for men. See, this is, this is what we see. We see all of these things happening and, and people are in these horrible situations. They cry out to the Lord. They turn and, and he reaches down with his love and he meets them. And he, he breathes new redemptive life into them. I think that's the core of our gospel, right? I mean, that's, that's Jesus' first words of ministry in, in Matthew and Mark. We see it a little bit in Luke. It's hinted at in, in John where he starts his ministry. He says, repent, repent. We know it's turn. For the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is amongst you, has come down. It's the, the prodigal father who stands on the porch of his house watching every day with that steadfast, unfailing love, waiting for the son to come back up the road. He knows he's coming. And he runs out and he greets him and he opens his arms and he says, Repent, just, just turn and enter my embrace and feel the warmth of my chesed, unfailing Steadfast love that's waited and watched for you all these long years. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to spend the rest of the time exploring some stories of what happens when this Hesed love, when God's unfailing, steadfast love runs smack into people who are displaced from their homes and enters in the lives of refugees and asylum seekers and all these things. So I'm just going to, if it's okay with you, I'm just going to spend the rest of the time telling some stories. I talked to you about Il Sojourno. Il Sojourno is a simple place, a bunch of folding tables and folding chairs. We get them out. Every time we open, we have to set the room up, throw some cheap vinyl tablecloths on with fluorescent orange flowers. We make gallons and gallons of tea and throw decks of cards out on the table. And guys can just come in and hang out. They play cards. Some of them just put their head down on the table and they just sleep the whole time we're open. A friend of mine, Matt, who is a ministry partner with us, who worked with us for 
for quite a while. And early on in this process, he pulled me aside and said, Tim, I think this is a waste of time. What are we doing here? I said, what do you mean, man? He said, we, we're, we're playing cards with these guys. They're coming in, they're sleeping on the tables. We, we learn Italian. We help tutor them in Italian and, and a little bit of English. He said, what we need to be doing is, is bringing them in here and, and shutting everything down, a, you know, halfway through, tell them to put the cards away, and we're just we're going to preach the gospel to them because that's what they need to hear. He said, Matt, we're not doing that. This is a safe space. We're going to engage with them. You're welcome to come and be a part of it with us, but, but that's not the space that we're creating. And he kind of said, okay, I mean, we debated this with the leadership and with the Italian churches and all this kind of stuff, and we carried on. So fast forward, after getting kicked out of England, I got to spend three months back in Italy. Rachel and Joy and I went back because we didn't know where else to go. So, so we went back to Italy and, and hung out at Il Sojourno. And it's pretty cool. You know, stuff's still going. It's still the same tablecloths, the same tables. They painted the room. But other than that, everything's just the same. And Matt comes up to me and says, Hey, Tim, can you come to my place for dinner tonight? I said, Yeah, sure. So we go out to dinner with him. He and his wife were actually at their apartment. He says, Tim, you need to understand that this place, Il Sojourno, I still go. Every time it's open, I still volunteer. He said, I have the most and the deepest faith conversations of my entire week in this space. So I spend, I spend my whole week doing ministry on campuses and ministry with Italians in the street and, and teaching the gospel. And he says, but I have the deepest faith conversations of my entire week right here because I walk in and guys go, hey, hey, Matt, you, you believe the Bible. So we've got this stack of Bibles in about 12 or 15 languages on the table right as you walk in the door. So they... Even if we don't say anything, they can't miss it. So you believe in this stuff, right? Matt says, yeah, I believe in the Bible. I got this question, man. You got to help me understand. And they'll, they'll sit down at a table and everyone's playing cards around them and they'll talk about Jesus. It's the coolest thing. So there's a group now of about 20, 18, 23, I don't know, it's right in that range somewhere, guys who every week get together and they, they take Bibles out of Ilse Journal. They go in and they find the one in the right language and they take it with them. And they get together where they can find space in a park or someone's apartment or a, a McDonald's or whatever works. And it's a group of guys, they're, they're former Muslim guys who believe in Jesus. There are current Muslim guys who don't know what any of this is about. There's, there's guys who are just curious. They're like, I, I don't think I believe in anything anymore. And they're bringing, their, they're bringing these Bibles and they're sitting there and they'll sit there for three hours and just read together. And they'll get to something they don't understand and they'll say, I, I don't get this. This part doesn't make sense to me. And some of the other guys jump in and say, well, yeah, do you remember last week we read that? I wonder if it's related to that. What about this? Oh, I don't know. What about that? It's not being led by an American missionary. It's not being led by a, an Italian pastor. It's just a bunch of guys who are chasing Jesus and saying, what's this about? If they get stuck, they'll call Matt or they'll text him and say, hey, we're reading this passage. I don't know what it's about. Can you help us? And he'll jump in and, and have conversation. The Hesed love of God is alive and is chasing people down. We have this young lady in Kakuma, Kenya. She actually lives outside of the camp. She's Turkana, which is a tribe, a kind of a really aggressive warring tribe. And they live outside of the tent camp. And, and this group of women, there's about 20 women, I think, that she's pulled together. Most of them widows. A lot of them have children. They're not even allowed in the tent camp because they're, they're not technically refugees. They're fleeing an internal conflict, and so they can't go into the tents. And, and they've realized that 
that they need something to support and raise their families. And so they bought a bunch of chickens and they sell the eggs. The nearest fresh eggs near Kakuma are 500 kilometers away. So they kind of have the corner on the market on eggs, right? And so my boss, Tom, has gotten to know them over the years and spent time with them. And they said, Tom, if we could get more chickens and we could have more eggs and, and we could support our, our kids, but also our community, and we could really start to do some things here. And so Tom has worked with a lot of local churches here in the States and people have given. And, and I think they've just finished building chicken coops. They had about 465 chickens. They just built, finished building new coops for 2,000 chickens. They're looking to get 1,500 more chickens to lay eggs that they can use to support their lives. And now that's developing into, you know, we don't call it ministry, but they're meeting Jesus and they're, they're using this as a way to impact people for Jesus. I'll talk to you about my friend Carlos. Carlos is a Peruvian guy. He's a young guy. I met him in Italy at Il Sojourno a few years ago. Carlos was incarcerated after moving from Peru to Italy. He got in some trouble and he was incarcerated in the Italian jail system. And he met an elder from my church, Vittorio. Vittorio is an Italian guy. He's about 85 years old. Vittorio's awesome. He goes and still does prison ministry every week. He met Carlos. And when Carlos was released from jail, he had to do community service on parole, right? And he says, I don't know what to do for community service. And Vittorio says, I know what you do for service. He says, you come and you serve at Il Sejorno. He says, I know the guys who run this. They'll let you come and we'll sign your community service for this. Carlos says, okay. So every week he shows up and he helps us put tables out, set chairs out. And then he sits back the whole, the whole time, however many hours were open. And he just makes tea. He makes pots of tea. And he serves the guys. He comes out and he's like, oh, you need a refill on your tea. Keeps that going. Then he cleans up at the end. He mops the sticky floors and goes home. We sign off on his community service. So last spring, 2016, when I got to go back, I saw Carlos. He was there. I said, hey, Carlos, how are you doing? He says, Tim, come here. I have to tell you the story. I said, what's going on, man? So we kind of go in the back room. He says, Tim, a couple weeks ago, I met Jesus. I said, what do you mean? He says, yeah, I prayed and I'm following Jesus and I want to learn more about him and well, tell me what happened. What's the story? I've known you for almost two years now. He said, what happened here? You know, every week I would come in and I'd make tea for these guys. They're, they're homeless and they're hopeless. They're fleeing. Most of them, did you know, most of them have seen their families killed. I said, yeah, Carlos, I've been doing this for like 20 years. I've heard their stories. I know. He goes, man. And I watch. He said, I would come in and I'd watch. And these guys are hopeless, but you know who showed up? You know who would come in and serve them? You know who, who gives their volunteer time? It's Christians, man. It's people who love Jesus. And he starts to kind of tear up a little bit. He said, I realized as I'm watching that people who love Jesus, if they can love people like that, that they can love people like me. And, and if they can love a refugee who's fleeing a war and they come in and they give their time to carry them cups of tea, they can love an ex-Peruvian Peruvian ex-convict living in Rome who's hanging out in the back of the room here. And he's just lit up. And this guy is just going, I want to know more. So he's, he's attending Vittorio's church now. He's, he's worshiping with that group. His 
immigration papers are at risk because of his whole jail time. They're trying to work all that stuff out. But you know what? The world's watching. And, and when things happen, when the crisis hits and the valve closes down and the cracks start to show and the world's watching and saying, who's going to respond? Where, where are the Jesus followers when all this stuff is happening? And they notice. And we don't think they do. We think that we're just here in our church Sunday morning and we go to church and then we go to work and we go to school or we go home and, and we're just kind of doing our thing. But the world's watching and they're saying, you say Jesus makes a difference in your life. I want to see what that difference is. And Carlos said, I saw it. I saw the difference and I want to be a part of that. A story of three friends in Southall. Um, this guy up here in the plaid is kind of a dark picture, but friend of mine, Daniel. Daniel was at the pinnacle of life in his country. He was uh, like third to the president, third or fourth. He had access. He was in meetings with president, vice president. He was a technical engineer for the state-run media, right? So the state controls all the media in his country. He was the guy who made sure that it gets out on the airwaves. He was rich. He was set up. He had fancy houses and cars and beautiful wife and children. Life was really good for Daniel in this country. And, and Daniel went on this trip to Europe to do some training for his work. He's a really smart guy. I don't understand all of what it was, but I think it was something about like communication satellites and how they could use those to better um, distribute the state news channel around the country, something like that. So he and the secretary of the state media, so the, the boss guy who's like right in with the president, they traveled together to Europe for this conference. And about the second day of the conference, the secretary of the state media announces, I'm defecting. I'm never going back home to that corrupt government. And he disappears. And Daniel, by association, instantly became a defecting refugee. He had no plan to defect, but he was associated with this guy. As soon as this guy fled, Daniel's life imploded. He was blacklisted in the country. They seized his assets, took his home and his cars his bank accounts liquidated everything and dumped it into the state. And they arrested his wife and put her in prison, in a, a political prison. His children were sent off to live with a distant relative. And all of a sudden, Daniel went from being the top to being homeless, stateless, didn't have a passport. If he tried to use his passport, he'd be arrested too. Absolute implosion. His sister and brother-in-law live in South Hall, where we were serving. They attend our church. And Daniel found himself kind of crawling back to them and saying, I don't know what to do. Can I sleep on your couch? So he wasn't a very nice guy. His sister would tell us he would never show up back in their country. Like he never visited. When he did, it was only to rub in how poor they were and how rich he was. He was not a real nice guy. And now he's sleeping on their couch. And we met actually over the soundboard because I used to run sound for the church amongst the other things that we would do. And he showed up one day. And he's like, oh, man, look at that soundboard. That thing's ancient. I could fix this thing. You know, he's this refugee from this Africa, East African country. It's like, ah, I fixed this up for you. And he did. He came in. We, we re rebuilt that soundboard. That built this relationship. So we started a, I started a men's Bible study in the church there. And, and Daniel started coming. We'd read scripture together, right? Studying through the book of Mark and, 
And Daniel one day says, man, this is weird. I said, what do you mean it's weird? He said, my country, this would never happen. So what do you mean? He said, well, first of all, we're orthodox, which means that you go in and a priest tells you what to do and what to believe and how to believe. And you go home and you don't do it because you don't believe the priest anyway. That's orthodoxy. <laughs> all right, a little cynicism there. He said, but, but even beyond that, like a group of men would never sit down and read a Bible together. That would never happen. And, and they wouldn't sit and talk about this kind of stuff. This is like personal stuff. Men don't do that in my country. Said, but I, I think I kind of like it. And so he starts just walking through this stuff and starts having more input. And we're, we're reading through the book of Mark and the miracles of Jesus. And he's like, whoa, stuff's amazing. And he starts asking us to pray. He's like, guys, could you, could you pray? Because my wife got out of prison. And so I'm raising money and sending money to pay people smugglers who can get her across the African continent and up to England. Because England has agreed already, they've, they've released her papers, but they won't help get her out. So if I can get her here, she already has like papers. She's, she's a documented person here. And so we'd pray. And so their friend of mine pulled me aside one night after, after Bible study. He says, Tim, come here a second. I say, oh, what's going on, man? Says, can we do that? Says, can we do what? are we allowed to pray for him to raise money to pay people smugglers to sneak his wife across? Are we allowed to pray for that? I said, man, I have no idea, but I'm praying. And God can sort it out. And eventually, man, it worked. She was kidnapped again, halfway across Africa, held for ransom. He had to pay more money. Miraculously, they actually took the money and, and got her to London, which is almost unheard of. We all told him, don't give him the money. But anyway, that's another story. And they're up there now. And, and his sister, I still talk to his sister, and she says, he's, he's following Jesus. Thanks for praying for him. I said, it's amazing. He doesn't let us know. He sleeps on the couch, or he was. And, and we'd walk into the room, and he'd like set the Bible down. I'm cool, you know. She goes, but I know he's reading his Bible because I clean the apartment. And I go and I look when he's not, I'm cleaning. And I was like, oh, his Bible's there. And every day the bookmark moves. So I know. Moses and his wife, Sarah, she's kind of that um, pillow of pink flowers there, are from Nepal. They heard about Jesus a little bit in Nepal. Their family are uh, high leaders in their church or in their religion there. Finds himself in London. We get an email at the church saying, I want to know more about Jesus. And Moses isn't his real name. His real name, he's got a Nepali name. And the pastor gets this and doesn't recognize the name and sends it to my wife. To Rachel says, hey, Rachel, could you meet with this lady? Because she wants to know more about Jesus. Of course, that's what we do. So she goes to the church and she's waiting and here's a knock at the door and, and in walks Moses. And she went, ah, oh, you're not a Nepali woman. She's like, Tim, that was a man's name. Can you come to the church? So I show up at church and we talk. We get to know him. He's like, yeah, we're going to start coming to your church. We want to know more about this Jesus. I, I just, I'm really open to world religions. Long story short, he ends up doing, he and his wife end up doing the Alpha course with us, which is an amazing course because it gets people asking questions. And they start learning about Jesus and they start reading the Bible and they're like, this stuff is amazing. It's really cool. We get to the section on the resurrection, right? The core, pivotal piece of the Christian journey and, and her eyes light up. She's kind of shy and laid back. Her eyes light up. She gets excited. She goes, oh, this is amazing. I said, well, Sarah, Sarah, what's so amazing? Like, tell me about it. Tell us what's going on in your heart. She goes, this is wonderful. This whole resurrection is like the best thing ever. I said, yeah, it is. Tell me about that. She goes, that means that when I'm resurrected, I can come back as an American, right? 
Yeah. Said, All right, let's back this up. A, let's back it up a bit. Said, We're talking resurrection, not reincarnation. They're really close, and it sounds kind of funny. But man, these guys are, again, they're just running smack into that Hesed love. So the last thing we got to do before we left the UK, they said, we'd like to be baptized. I said, man, that'd be cool. And so our pastor said, yep, let's do it. First week in November, they, they blew up the kiddie pool in the back parking lot of the church there and filled it up with water. November's not the time to get baptized outside in London. It's kind of like being outside this morning. And I got to baptize Moses and, and Rachel got to baptize Sarah. And it was an amazing testimony of God's goodness and love. And we don't know what's going to happen with these guys. There's a good chance they'll get kicked back to Nepal. They've been praying about that. And they, they said, you know what? If we can't stay, if, we, if our visas are canceled and we get kicked back, it's okay. Because our family needs to hear about Jesus too. And, and maybe our whole time in London was so that we could, we could go through this with you guys and go back and tell our country about what God's done in our life. I'm just going to tell you one really short story here about a guy named Jean-Pierre who was in Kakuma camp. He was there 20 years. He was in another camp for about six years before that. has been resettled to Minneapolis. He was part of a council of churches in Kakuma. There are about 85 tent churches that have grown up. Because when pastors become refugees, what do you do in a refugee camp? You look around and you pastor the people that are around you. You know, they just can't get rid of it. And so you've got these pastors who fled their countries or grown up in the camps. They feel the call of God and, and they bring people together and they teach about Jesus. And, and this whole thing is growing into all these churches. I mean, hundreds, thousands of people who are growing up in refugee camps, learning about Jesus. And they're tithing, which is really cool. Talk to my boss, Tom, and they're like, yeah, well, we want to tithe to take care of the poor people. He's like, who are the poor people? What are you talking about? Like you live in tents that don't even belong to you. I said, no, no, it's not us. Well, we, get, we get a kilo of rice a week from the UN, so we take a tenth of that. We take it out to the Turkana people, like Justine, who's doing the chickens. We take it out there because, man, they got it rough. They aren't even allowed in the camp, and so we tithe to them. And now we're planting churches amongst the Turkana people. It's amazing stuff. It's amazing stuff. But they're living in Minneapolis now. That's not his family. That's a, a friend of his who's actually a Muslim guy who doesn't know it, but he's, just, he's chasing Jesus. He hasn't figured that part out yet. But, but Jean-Pierre, he's got his three kids. His son is about 13. We had dinner the other day. How are you guys doing the first year? He said, oh, it's been okay. It's rough. I'm sweeping floors. Said, How are your kids doing in school? He said, it's, it's okay. He said, the first week my son came back, he said, Dad, it's terrible. I've got to tell you, it's terrible. He said, what's wrong, son? And I sat down and talked, and he said, they don't teach me the Bible in these schools. He said, and they never will. There's no Bible class I can go to in an American public school. I didn't know that. Because back in the camp, any schools are typically run by faith organizations who've stepped in to do that, right? And so even though, or by the churches, and so, so even though they're in a camp, they're, they still have a Bible class. And he said, son, don't you worry about it. He said, that's my job as your dad. And so I'm going to teach you the Bible, and I'm going to send you to school, and you're going to learn what they teach you. I said, okay. And so now every morning at 5.30, the whole family, all five of them get up, 5.30, and they have morning Bible study. And they take turns, even the six-year-old. They all take turns. They get a day to lead the Bible study. And they'll come in, and this is what I've been reading in Scripture, and this is, this is what we should learn. And then they go off to school. He buys five New Testaments every month, gives one to every member of the family. He says, your, your job in the next month 
is to find one person you can hand this Bible to, this New Testament. And then next month you're going to tell the story of what happened, and I'll give you a new one. And, and they just do this as a family. And you know what? I watch the news and, and I hear the stories and I, I understand the complexities of this. I mean, it's huge and it's deep. And there's so many facets to consider. But the one thing that I can't escape, that I think the news gets all wrong, refugees are more than just people in need. They've got needs. There's, there's ways we can meet them along the road. But refugees are being deeply touched and transformed and redeemed and called by the chesed, steadfast, unfailing love of Jesus. And they're there's stuff going on. And, and refugees like, like Ben, the father in this, who don't even know that they're following after Jesus, and they bring a depth and a richness that shapes us as a church because we came out of that refugee story. And so whatever other complexities there are, God's doing amazing stuff. And so Steve said I had a little extra time. I've already blown through that this morning. Uh, but I want to leave you with one challenge, and that is simply this. You have no idea the depth and power and strength of that chesed love flowing through you. But I had a conversation this week with a, with a guy down in Portland, and he said to me, the best advocacy that I can give is the advocacy with the person right in front of me. That's the life that I can impact. And as you go out this week, that's my challenge for you. Who is that life in front of you that, God's love is pouring into your life and just gets to reflect and bless that person, that person in front of you. The big story is complex, but it's happening there and God's doing stuff here. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. You have pursued every person in this room with your steadfast, unfailing, chesed love. And you're still pursuing us. And people who know your son are still being pursued and people who don't know you are still being pursued and invited and you're standing right behind us saying, repent, turn, just turn to me and enter my embrace because I love you. Lord, I just pray that Northview would continue to be a vessel for that love and reflect it into this community and this world around them that people would see them, people who are watching and say, I know what Jesus' followers do. They bless the world around them. Amen.